you ever asked the question, what is it that God desires from me? What is it that he truly, truly wants? And if you've asked that question, you've probably answered it with words like love and obedience and worship. And all those would be correct uh, answers, by the way. God wants all of those things from us. But if we were to choose just one word to answer that question, I think it would have to be faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So here's what he wants. God wants you and I to see him for who he is. Not for who we want him to be or who we think he is, but who has revealed himself to be. That is that he is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God. And he wants you and I to submit ourselves fully and completely to him. That's what faith looks like. Now, that's easier said than done. Would you agree? It's easier to say it than actually do it. And part of that reason is because there are literally a trillion different obstacles standing in our way that want to disrupt our trust in him. Problems, difficulties, tragedies, sicknesses, you name it, it's there. But there is one thing that I think that challenges our faith more than everything that I've just mentioned combined. And that is when you and I are forced to wait upon the Lord. I don't know about you, but waiting on God, waiting for him to answer my prayer, waiting for him to intervene, waiting for him to save a loved one that I so desperately want to see come to faith in Jesus Christ, waiting for him to heal my marriage or to change me or to rid me of sin. When I'm waiting upon the Lord, that is the period in which my faith is most challenged. And in this passage, we see a man who is forced to wait by Jesus himself. And so what we find, we find out what our faith looks like in the time of waiting. And we see three different aspects of that this morning. First of all, when we're waiting, we see faith initiated. We see faith initiated. Now, our story actually begins in verse 40, and it begins really with a familiar scene. It should be familiar by now to us. Jesus has traveled with his disciples to the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee to a region known as the Gerasenes. And there he performed a miracle by casting a legion of demons out of a man. Now, you would think after showing that kind of power that the people might say, hey, stick around for a little while. We might want to get to know who you are. Instead, they send them packing. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. In fact, they literally begin to beg him to leave altogether. So Jesus does. Jesus gets into the boat. He travels to the other side, back to the other side, to the western side of the, the, the lake once again. And there he's met by a group of people who have been patiently waiting and anxiously waiting his arrival. So notice we pick up in verse 41. In verse 41, it says, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had, only, he had only one child or one daughter, only, excuse me, only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So in the midst of this crowd, pressing in on Jesus, all no doubt trying to get his attention, there's a man who literally throws himself at the feet of Jesus and begins to implore him, begins to beg him, please come to my house. I have a daughter, my only daughter. She's 12 years old, and she needs you. She is at the, she's at the cusp of death. And so Jesus agrees to go. And what's interesting here is Luke begins to tell us a little bit about this man. He tells us that he was a ruler of the synagogue. This would have been the synagogue synagogue there in Capernaum. 
And what we know of him is he would have had a myriad of different kinds of responsibilities. Uh, To look after a synagogue, which was a local place of worship, they didn't use professional clergy, but rather they used and hired regular laymen, everyday laymen. So his responsibility would be, be to take care of the facilities. He would have to make sure everything was on the calendar, keep up with the calendar. He would determine who was going to speak from one Sabbath to the next. He would even tear, take care in, and care for the scrolls that were going to be read on each, in each particular Sabbath. Well, because of his position, he would have been well-known and well-respected in the community. That's why what he does here by throwing himself at the feet of Jesus and beginning to beg Jesus, this would have made everybody uncomfortable. This is not what dignified, respectable, affluent people do. They don't throw themselves at the feet of a person and beg. It seems, well, it seems rather desperate. And that's exactly what this man was. He was desperate. Why? Because he was out of control. He didn't have control over the situation that he's been in. I know some folks, even in this church, who have lost children, and I I wouldn't want that on anybody. You know how difficult that must be. Even people talking, they'll sit back and say, hey, I could deal with anything, but not the loss of a child. It's just not the way that it should go. So this man is completely brokenhearted. He's afraid his 12-year-old daughter is going to die. Now, he has tried everything, no doubt within his power, but it's beyond his power. He knows that his respectability, his position, his power in his money is not capable of saving his daughter. That is what leads him at this point to come and to begin to beg Jesus. His situation, his difficulty actually initiates him and his faith in Jesus Christ. And we hear a little bit, if you look in in Mark's account of this, he actually says to Jesus that this is my little daughter. This is my little daughter. She's 12 years old. She's not really all that little. Uh, In fact, what this is, is it's a term of endearment. It's kind of like one day, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I have five daughters. I'm sorry, I I had to pause there for a moment. I just started thinking that that means five weddings and, well, that's a lot. And so pray for me. And so I'm thinking about that, which means that one day, one day, some little goofy head kid is going to come and he's going to ask for my daughter's, one of my daughter's hands in marriage. And after the interrogation and the waterboarding and whatnot of that young man, and if I think that he is going to be the appropriate man for my daughter, then one day I'm going to give each of my daughters away. And on that day, I'm going to feel within my heart, I'm giving my little girl away. And the reason for that is even though they're as tall as I am, two of them are as tall as I am now, it's not really, it doesn't take much, I know, quit laughing, you have wicked and guile of heart who laughed, and so I, I know that, but at that day, I feel like my little girl is going to be like, it's an it's a, it's a, it's a aspect of endearment. This has been his girl for 12 years, he's loved her, he, he held her when she was born, he, he named her, he loved her more than anything else. It was his only daughter, and now he's about to be lost, she, she's about to be taken. He can't do anything about it. God uses the situation now to initiate faith in him that was not there previously. Little background that is interesting is he is now, he's the ruler of the synagogue at Capernaum, and that's who he is. Interesting thing, we've already talked about Capernaum in the synagogue there. 
earlier in our study of the book of Luke, what we had found was that there was a centurion who actually gave the money for that to be built. And he had a sick servant. Do you remember that? He had a sick servant. And, and, and Jesus says, I'll come to him and be able to, to the house and heal. And he says, you don't even have to come to my house. Uh, he, he says, you just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus does. And he says, I've, I've not seen any type of faith like this in all of Israel. This is the greatest faith I've ever seen. Well, what we need to know is through the other, other gospels is that the people in something else happens in that same synagogue. And what happened is Jesus healed another man on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. And there were people who now kicked him out of that synagogue. And most likely one of them would have been this man, the ruler of the synagogue. So he didn't believe, he didn't trust God, he didn't want had to have anything to do with Jesus at all. Until what? Until his world was turned upside down. God is using this event to do what? To break through and to initiate faith in this man. Now what we see is, we see that he comes to a very similar position that we saw the disciples come in. And just two stories ago, Jesus stilling the storm. Do you remember in that story, most of the men that were in the boat with Jesus were, were fishermen. They were sailmen, they were professional sailors. And yet a storm came that was so great that in their ability, in their experience, they couldn't overcome and they couldn't solve the problem. So what did they do? They initiated faith and they called out for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ to help. Now, one of the reasons that I even bring this up, a large reason why I bring this up is because, is, is because when these men cry out and, and they're calling to Jesus, one of the things that we had said from that lesson is we have to be very careful because the temptation is, for us to question the care and love for God when we're in the midst of difficulties. We wonder if he really loves us. We wonder if he really honestly cares for us in the midst of that. And so in our minds, the problem is we have a hard time reconciling God's love for us and the difficulties we face. We feel like they are incompatible with each other. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches that God very well will allow us to go through an immense amount of struggles and difficulties, all for what? Not to crush our faith, but to grow it, to initiate it, to get us in a particular place where normally we would never cry out to heaven, never seek him. But when all else fails, he will allow us to do it, to be able to drive him to himself. And this is where this man is. And what I love about it is Jesus in his compassion responds to him. The next phrase is, and Jesus went. Oh, please, beloved, don't allow the difficulties that you're facing right now, and there are a lot of them in our church right now, and most of them I don't even know about. All I know is week after week and talking with you, these are real problems. These are not made up. These are real difficulties. Some of these are real tragedies, and I ask you with all of my heart as you're facing them, do not allow it for you to doubt God's love. His love and your difficulty are not incompatible. They are compatible. Don't harden your heart towards God. Press into God. Invite him into your struggle. Invite him into your problem so he walks you through it. I love what one man said. Uh, This was at one time uh, an older preacher. He said, I'll never forget it. He says, many people make the mistake believing that Jesus came to get them out of trouble wrong. Jesus came to get in trouble with them. So what happens is whatever difficult you're facing, ask Jesus to come into it. Rarely does he deliver you immediately from it. Instead, he is now going to be present within the difficulty to walk you through it. 
And so understand that God is using this in the, most, in the midst of that trouble to initiate faith in you that was not previously there before the encounter and the difficulty. There's a second thing that we see, and that is not only faith initiated, we see faith challenged. Now, if you were reading along with us, like we, or studying along like we have in this book, you going from story to story, you would expect that something was going to happen immediately after we read the words, and he went. What were we expecting? We're expecting in the next line, or at least the next paragraph, for to say, Jesus went to her house, and she was healed. Why would we expect that? Because that's the way every story seems to be laid out. When, when, when they cried out to Jesus in that boat and they said, Lord, did you care for us? And they cried out, Jesus immediately calmed the storm. When the demoniac ran to him and kneeled down before him, he immediately delivered him. And so now what we're expecting is immediate deliverance from this child for the very next paragraph to say, and he went and she was healed and we'll all be happy. We think Jesus is on the job. Well, that's not what happens. In this story, there's a snag. Notice, if you will, in verse 43. It says, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and she touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So here we see that Jairus and his daughter are not the only ones in need there that day. Church, that's important for you to understand. How many people in the midst of trouble say, why me? Why am I going through this? Why you? Why everybody else? You are not the only one going and being challenged in your faith right now. You are not alone. That is why it is so important for you and I to be a part of a local church. For you and I to be able to walk with other believers. For you and I to be able to sit there and to be able to bear one another's burdens. To be able to sit there and say, I've struggled through this and I'm struggling with it. And have somebody else come along and say, I'm struggling with the same exact thing. Let's, let's, let's turn to Jesus together. Let's walk through this together and with Christ Let's invite them in. This is what is so important here. Well, this woman, she had the problems of her own. She had been bleeding, had a condition of uh, a chronic uh, illness where she was hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, which means she felt exhausted and sick for 12 long years. She did everything she could, just like you would, go to every single doctor, try to find every possible thing that she could do to be delivered from this. In fact, Luke says that she had spent her entire life savings on this, on doctors, Mark actually tells, in fact, but Luke comes back and says, as a physician now, he says that she could not be healed by anyone. Mark's account actually says of the same story that this woman had suffered greatly at the hands of many physicians. And how did she suffer? Well, let me give you one example. Turning to the Babylonian Talmud, which most of you are familiar with and probably read late at night. Let me give you a prescription that would have been given by doctors during that day. It says, fetch a barley grain from the dung of a white mule. Now, anything starts off that way cannot be good. Are we agreed? And then it says, when she eats it and holds it in for one day, her discharge will cease for one day. If for two days, her discharge will cease for two days. If for three days, it will cease forever. There's no doubt in my mind that she probably would have tried anything if she could just stop the suffering. But she's had to wait now for some 12 years. She did everything. She went everywhere that she possibly can, but to absolutely no avail. Just like Jairus, she had come to the end of herself. And so what does she do? It's an opportunity for her to believe all the more in Jesus Christ. This is faith initiated. Mark tells us in his account 
that she actually, that she actually at the time uh, heard, uh, uh, excuse me, actually heard reports about Jesus doing the supernatural and healing the sick. So this begins to stir faith in her. So what does she do? She seeks Jesus out. But she can't go right up to Jesus. Here's why. Because she's not only physically suffering, she is also socially suffering. Because with the issue of blood, she is now, according to the Mosaic law, now she is unclean ceremonially. I mean, meaning that she wasn't a, a dirty woman. It was just that means spiritually she was not to have contact with anything else as long as that flow of blood continued. She couldn't go into the synagogue. She couldn't go into the temple. She, 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 she couldn't be with other people. If she touched somebody, now you see the secrecy. Now you see why she's sneaking up behind Jesus and touching him. She doesn't want anybody to know. She's doing something she knows she's not supposed to do. But this is faith. And it's also superstition. So she believes he can, but she feels like she could just, if she could just touch the, the, the hem of his garment, it was believed during that particular day, the superstition was that these men of power had so much power that if you just touch something that belonged to them, that that power would be infused to you. So this is what it teaches me. She ends up being healed, by the way. Spoiler alert, she's going to be healed, but it's not going to be because her faith was perfect. It's going to be because her faith was placed in he who is perfect. So it doesn't matter about the perfect faith. You say, I'm struggling with faith. It doesn't matter how strong your faith is. Place it in the right person, in the right object of your faith. And so here's what she does. And she comes to him and, and she seeks and she touches. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says in verse 45, he says, but Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. The word power here in the Greek is the word dunamis. It's actually where we get our English word power from. The power of God flowed in this woman, and she was restored. She was healed. And so she doesn't want anybody still to know, but Jesus kind of blows her cover when he says, somebody touch me, stop, somebody touch me. And of course, Peter, who we love, you got to love Peter, because he's always rebuking Jesus Christ, the son of God, the creator of the world, right? <laughs> he's not just rebuking people. He's always just telling them, hey, you're wrong. And so now he's like, hey, Jesus, man, there's folks all around you. Let's just keep moving. Let's just keep moving on. <laughs> Don't mind him. You know, that type of thing. We're apologizing for him. But Jesus gives this woman an opportunity to be able to come forward, and she does, verse 47. And when Jesus saw that she, had, that, that she, was, not hit, uh, that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your father has made you well. Go in peace. What a story. What a story about the mighty power of God to be able to heal, that we have a God who can physically heal. People ask me all the time, what do we do when we get bad news from a doctor? I say, pray. Because that doctor does not have the final say in how long you live, God does. He knows the numbers of your days. He's numbered your days. He knows how long. He's, and he alone is in control of that. This is a great story because remember the overarching idea of what Luke is trying to teach us? For the last couple of stories, the whole purpose of re writing this whole book is so that you and I would believe more. Do you remember that? We'd believe more. What does he want us to believe? That Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is God. He is our Savior. How has he been building that argument? Well, from remember from the stilling of the storm, what was the point? That Jesus has the power over creation. Who has the power over creation? God. The next point was, is that Jesus ends up casting demons out. Jesus has the power over the demonic forces. Who has the power, power over demonic forces? God. Now, who has the power to be able to heal an individual from a sickness like this? God. 
Jesus is God. It's the point, the overarching point of the stories. But there's something more to it. Let us not forget that somebody is waiting. Somebody's waiting. Who is it? Jairus. He's over the court. He's watching all this go down. Have you ever been in a hurry? I have, listen, with, with, with my wife, I am, you know she is much more personable than I am. Okay, don't amen that. Okay, don't, don't you dare. All right, She's just much more personable for me. She can talk forever to someone. I love to talk with you, and I love you, and we could sit down. But a little bit, I'm like some of you where you just need to get away every once in a while. Are you guys with me? Gosh, I feel alone up here. Okay, I, I know that's got to be true. All right, I believe it. Danny, thank you. I saw that hand, all right? Eventually, you just have to be alone. So sometimes at the end of a day or at the end of church, I'm ready to finally go home. You get done with talking to everybody, and my wife is still talking. I'm like, honey, we got to go. We got to go. All right, I'll be there in just a minute. One minute means five minutes, means 10 minutes, means 20 minutes, right? You're like, I really got to go. I just, I got to get out the door. And you're waiting, and I become impatient. Here's a man, it's more than asking his wife to come. After a service, it's right now where he is. He's asked Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. The, the, the clock is ticking in his mind. And it seems like anything that can happen is happening so that this is the slowest process he's ever imagined. The first thing was the crowd won't move out of the way. Won't move, just move out of the way. They won't move out of the way. So it's impeding his progress. And then this woman comes up and somebody touches him. And then Jesus is talking crazy stuff. Jesus is saying, hey, somebody touched me. And everybody knows everybody's touching him. And then he sits there and he's looking around. And then this woman comes and she tells her whole life story. Everything about her, her entire testimony from beginning to end. When we teach how to te- tell people testimonies, it's usually short and concise. Just be short and concise with what God did before, during, and after your salvation. This lady is long. And the whole time, this man is sitting there, and the, ti- the, t- the clock is ticking, and he knows that his daughter is getting closer and closer to death. And so at this point, the idea is, what happens? What does he do? Well, it's, it's not far-stretched to think that his faith was being challenged, and it's not far-fetched to think that it would be easy for him to become embittered towards this woman and even frustrated with Jesus. Tim Keller tells us, author and pastor, tells us that Jesus could have been accused of malpractice at this point. In other words, he didn't recognize who was, more, who was worse off. He says no, no hospital, no ER in the entire country would see this woman over that girl. But Jesus did. Why would he talk to a lady who had an, abs, uh, an obvious issue, sickness, but not tend to the one who was is sick to the point of death. That's the problem here. And death did come. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. If you were there, and even when I'm reading this text in my study during the week, this is what I ask. Is Jesus playing favorites? That's even how I feel sometimes. If I'm going through difficulty and somebody else, God seems to be answering. Is God just Does he just love them more than he loves me? Is this some kind of act of cruelty? Is he trying to destroy this man's faith? No, he's challenging it so that he'll strengthen it. That's what he's doing. Did you notice how many similarities are between these two stories? This cannot be by happenstance. Both people in trouble are women. Both people had seen doctors and doctors can't do, they're beyond the help of doctors at all. Their only help is found in the person of Jesus Christ. 
both of them are referred to as daughters here. Jesus refers to this woman as a daughter. She's, pro- she's probably not much younger than what he is at this point. But he refers to his daughter. Why? I think uh, particularly he's trying to draw the two stories together. This woman, this, 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 this man's daughter is 12 years old. She's about to die. This woman has been struggling with this flow of blood for 12 years. This is not happenstance. This is the providence and the sovereignty of God at work. He's not, he's not doing this and performing this healing before him to crush his faith, but rather to grow his faith. He wants him to be able to know that Jesus can do for him what he's doing for her. He wants him to know that he has that type of power to be able to do this. Jesus delayed not to destroy his faith, but to strengthen it. He did this to sustain his faith in the midst of his waiting. Look at verse 50. But Jesus, hearing this, answered him when he, when he heard that she had died. Uh, he, he goes, there, let me tell you exactly what happens. He, he tells her, he says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Let me tell you the rest of the story just very quickly. At the, at the end of the story, Jesus goes to the house. When he goes to the house, he basically says, don't cry because everybody's crying. This little girl's dead. He says, don't cry. And she's only sleeping. Well, they start mocking Jesus. They're laughing at him. So then he says, get out. Everybody get out. But Peter, James, and John, and the two parents, everybody else get out. Now, that's interesting to me. Why does he kick everybody else out of the room? Well, I think part of it has to do with what he says at the very end. After he, again, spoiler alert, he heals a little girl. You see it coming. And then at the end, he tells the parents, don't tell anybody. How does that work? Aren't people going to kind of know when she goes to daycare? Aren't they going to know when she's playing kickball outside? What is he saying? I think he was saying, don't give any details about what happened. Because if you don't believe, you don't get to see. It's faith that allows us to see God working in these ways. And so he heals. And so remember just earlier, and and he does, he says, arise child. She gets up. He says, feed her a sandwich. She gets a PB&J. She eats. All is well. You remember when I said in the earliest part of the sermon, I said that we as believers must be careful to understand that troubles in life and Jesus' love are not incompatible, but they are compatible. Do you remember that? Because God initiates faith in us that formerly was not there because of the difficulty that we're facing. Well, now we see is that so too, we must come to understand that waiting on Jesus to act is compatible with his love as well. He loves you. That's why he allows you to wait on him. Because nothing more than waiting causes you to depend on him all of the more and gets to the very core of who you are and what the very core of your faith is all about. And so this is what he does. And so we see here, you see, if we continue to try to force God into our timetable or our schedule, then we'll forever believe and begin to doubt God's ability and his love. God rarely acts on our timetable, rarely ever. Jesus' love for us is compatible with delays and long periods of waiting. He loves you in the midst of this time of waiting. Now, we see a third aspect of this, of faith. We see faith initiated. This is very quick, faith initiated. We see faith challenged, but now we see faith refined or refined faith. Verse 35, in here is what we see is this has been the whole point of Jesus. This is what he's wanted to be able to do. 
God is willing to allow us to, to experience human suffering in order to draw faith out in us. It is the faith that pleases God. And so what happens here, waiting on the Lord has always been one of God's primary tools of sanctifying us. We see this in some of the greatest believers in all of the word of God. We see it in the life of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David. God promised them, but they all had to wait. Through great difficulties and through great hardships, they had to wait on the Lord. But everything that happened during them during that time, God used to prepare them and to refine them. This is exactly what the word of God says in James 1, verses 2, 3, 4. When he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. What he's saying is we need to rejoice when the difficulties happen. You're like, that's impossible. It's only possible if you know that God's going to use it to make you more like him. And in the heart of the believer, it's our greatest desire. But how is he going to make us like him unless we depend fully on him? And how are we ever going to depend on him, fully on him, unless we face difficulties and unless we face difficulties over a long period of waiting? It is his tool to sanctify us. Your waiting is meant to make you more like Jesus. You said sanctification, what does that mean? Sanctification just in a simple way is just the process by which Jesus makes you more like him. That's what it is. And so let me give you just one, one, one verse, and then I'll give you two points in close. From the words of David, who, if you read his story, we know was a man who had to wait on the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 14, great verse to memorize, by the way. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Why? It's his means of sanctification in you and for me. Two things I want to leave you with just very quickly this morning is when you wait upon the Lord, you will give more than you ever imagined. When you wait on the Lord, it's going to take more of you than you could have ever imagined. What the woman wanted to touch and run, Jesus made her go public with her faith. Jairus wanted to trust Jesus for a healing, but Jesus made him trust in death. That Jesus not only had the power over sick people, but over death itself. What is Jesus doing? He's drawing and setting everybody up to understand that our greatest problem is not sickness in this world, but is death that leads us to the next. And Jesus has the power to make dead people alive. You will often come to a place, I will often come to a place of waiting that you and I will believe we cannot go any further. We can't be in this any longer. I don't have anything left. God, if you don't do anything now, God, it's going to be the end of me. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to push you a little further. He's going to stretch you a little bit further. Because God knows you. God knows how much he can place on you. He knows what you need to refine you and to sanctify you. Second, when you wait on the Lord, you will be given more than you ever imagined. You'll be given more than you'll ever imagine. Uh, This woman wanted a life-changing healing. Jesus gave her a life-changing relationship. Do you understand why the times that God does heal people, there's a big part of that is just to be able to show his glory and perhaps even to be able to lead people to faith in him that knows that if a God can do this, then they can also save them from their sins. Jairus wanted a healing for his little daughter. Jesus gave him a resurrection. God, it always gives you more in the time of your waiting than you can ever possibly imagine. You're, wa- you're wanting right now, some of you are wanting your marriage to be renewed. And you've gone to counselors, you've gone through difficulty, 
You've gone through hardship, and we need to be submitting to the Word of God and being transformed by the renewing of our mind and all of that. But what you need to understand is God is not just concerned for your marriage. God is concerned for you as a believer in Christ. He is renewing not only your marriage, He's renewing His love for you and your love for Him in the process. You're waiting for your child to come to faith. You cry out, you pray, you intercede. God is building your faith in you during this time. You're waiting on God to change your circumstances. And in the midst of it, God keeps pushing and stretching you farther. Why? Because God is leading you to be content solely with him. To build your faith more and more in him. God is working, even though you don't see it in the time of working. Because he is working in you. He's working in you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for the time that we have together. And God, right now, I just pray for all those who, God, here's the truth. We're either waiting, we're coming out of waiting, or we're going into waiting. That's the way this life works. God, as we're waiting for you, let us recognize, first of all, what it is. It's you allowing us and giving us opportunity to initiate faith, to challenge that faith in order for it to grow, and to finally purify it, God. So through the process, as difficult as it's going to be, we get to become more like you. God, let us recognize that. God, there, there be any here, Lord, that haven't come to grace, haven't come to a knowledge of you, haven't come to recognize themselves as sinners, guilty of sinning against you. God, I pray that you would meet them here now. Maybe the difficulties they've been in, maybe they're only here, not to this church because, because they're church members or they're Christians, but they only came today because they're hurting and they don't know what else to do. God, maybe they find themselves in the characters of these people and come and understand you're doing this to initiate faith in them, a saving faith, that they would recognize that they've sinned against you and they would recognize that there's no way for them to be made right unto you apart from faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. God, move and have your way in us this morning. In your precious name we pray, amen.